1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. I had an interesting experience the other day that had a lot to do with the changing technology of cinema. As we record this, it's fall, and in the world of film and television, fall is awards season. Members of the guilds and academies are invited to screenings of the award contenders, as well as being sent DVDs and online screeners of the films and shows. Last week, I went to the vista theater in hollywood a classic cinema that dates back to the 1920s and occupies the same building where ed wood had his office back in the 50s it's a beautiful historic place and a wonderful atmosphere to see movies the movie in question was marriage story a film by the very talented writer director noah baumbach keep in mind that the film was made for netflix with very limited release in theaters mostly for academy awards consideration Despite the fact that the film's primary platform is to stream, and the fact that almost all movies are shot and projected these days on digital media, Bombach shot that movie on 35mm film, and that was how it was projected. The film began to roll, and there were ugly black scratches that ran vertically all the way through every frame of the movie from beginning to end. It destroyed the whole purpose of the free tickets to the screening, to put the best foot forward for the film and its awards chances. It was an annoyance and a distraction to an otherwise very good movie. Technologies evolve, and usually for good reason. I understand filmmakers who were raised on 35mm film and use it to create the greatest art of our film culture, and the masterful filmmakers who insist on using that medium have more than earned the right to do so. But, whether the movie is shot on film or digital, when they are projected digitally, they are always in focus, the colors don't change, there is no judder, and they are never, ever scratched. Most of the tools of filmmaking are evolving and embracing that can help you evolve with it as an artist or as a viewer. Our guest today knows about evolution and revolution in pop culture. As an author as well as a screenwriter since the 90s, working with characters as iconic as Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, and the Critters themselves, David J. Scow coined the term splatterpunk and was that horror subgenre's leading light from its inception. We'll learn about his life in literature, film, and television after this. It's 2020 and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. From director Joe Begos comes Fangoria's latest movie, VFW. It's like John Carpenter directed an Expendables movie, except with a lot more mutants, drugs, insanity, and heart. A group of war veterans must defend their local VFW posts and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of punk mutants. The cast includes pretty much anyone who was ever in something you rented at Blockbuster. Stephen Lang, Martin Cove, William Sadler, Fred the Hammer Williamson, George Wendt, and David Patrick Kelly. Now streaming on demand. So get on it. So you were born in Germany.
0: Correct. And so you were a military brat? No, I was not a military brat. I was a German orphan adopted by American parents uh, who were then living in Middlesex. England. My dad was a World War II vet, and there was this, this weird uh, fashion uh, among American servicemen to adopt German orphans. He made three trips to Germany, and they ran out of babies. Uh, <laughs> he he almost adopted twin girls. Wow! And then on the third trip there, he came back with with you know me, not knowing what he was getting himself into. <laughs> and we lived in Middlesex until I was, was like three years old, and we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, then we moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and he retired from the Air Force, and then we started moving all over the country.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: I didn't go uh, to the same school with the same class of people from the time I was in the third grade to the time I was a junior in high school. Wow. Do you think that influenced the whole idea of
1: of writing, that this is very much a singular task, something that can only be done alone.
0: Well, writing writing is also an isolationist task. Exactly, uh, That's And my point. you and you need that. You, you need to uh, command those resources when it's just you and at that time a piece of paper mm-hmm. uh, in a machine <laughs> uh, and be self reliant basically yeah if uh, there's a more complicated answer in there but i think i know what you're getting you but know you're traveling
1: so much you don't have time and i don't know how many friends you had in these very uh transitory places you lived
0: well it was it was interesting because i lived in i lived for three years in huntington beach when i was in grade school hmm. and so huntington beach was a lot different from fort worth texas or lexington kentucky i you know would what I mean. guess yeah <laughs> uh there was a, uh there was a great um there were these people that lived in the house next door to one of the houses we lived in, in Huntington Beach. And they had tie-dyed curtains, Mm. and they had a zebra-striped van parked out in the front, and they had a red light bulb on their back porch, which Uh I thought was the coolest thing ever. No, it was not a cat house. Oh, okay. The red light district was No, the red light, it was just the whole colored light bulb thing. Gotcha. And there was a lady who lived in the cottage behind the house who was this enormous woman who wore these moo-moos and drove all over Huntington Beach in a golf cart. (laughs) Oh, wow. But here I am, little, little shaved living next door, looking at these weird people living next door and going, they're, they're kind of doing whatever they want, and they seem to be okay. Yes, That was so, inspirational.
1: Yeah. Well, you coming out of a military family, your dad having been part of the military for so long— the opposite, which would seem to be a very structured existence. Was it a structured existence? And then you're being exposed no, to No, because,
0: because when we were moving around all this time, my dad was largely absent. He was working on the dew line in the Arctic, the defense early warning radar line wow. in the Arctic. He went to a, a school in Paramus, New Jersey, and uh, and uh, qualified for ITT. He was running the dew line then. And uh, he was gone except for six weeks out of the year. Wow. And so it was just kind of loose. And my family was this kind of loose commune of total strangers. Really? Uh, my younger brother's my dad's only real child. You were we, adopted as I was adopted. Infant, yeah. uh, we had an older brother who was the youngest son of my dad's second wife. And if we get into this, we're going to be here for three hours. <laughs> uh, it's going to be hopscotch biology. And, yeah. yeah. But it was like, it was everybody. Uh, uh, we had maybe... Uh, we did not do like family meals at the dinner table, stuff like mm-hmm. that. That was un- unheard of. I would stagger out in the morning, get coffee, and go to high school. <laughs> so uh, you were
1: I, pretty much a latchkey kid.
0: Yeah, and I and I learned more from watching uh, Sesame Street and Rocky and Bullwinkle every morning than I did from going to high school. So. You know, I wasn't I cut out. I wasn't so. cut out for formalized public education. Let's I think that that's way. probably a good thing. Yes. What other dreams of yours may I crush? Now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's, we're in the dream crushing business.
1: But um, when did the writing start? I mean, did this start when you were in grade school? Were you doing that? Was uh, Did it come later on uh, during high school? Did you write for the school if, paper? If I had to
0: pinpoint it, I would say around the transition from junior high to high school, uh, I don't know how I got the idea into my head, but I thought at the time— you have to remember how long ago this was, and you yeah. have to consider how ancient we are. <laughs> uh, I heard that creak. Yeah, yeah exa- That was that was my neck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I thought this would might be an honorable profession to do that. I could stay at home, and I wouldn't have to put on the gray flannel suit hat and go right. to work and stuff like that. And I could sit here and if I have this machine, because when my dad came back from the Arctic once, he brought back this magical typewriting machine, oh. a Hermes typewriter, Ooh. which was very fancy for the time. It disappeared into my room and never came out. Yeah. And so the stuff that I did do for high school, all of a sudden my papers were all typed. Right. And at that point teachers didn't care. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's right. typed, give them an A, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And, uh, I thought this would be a good way to make a living. Now, at that time, there was a series of career booklets mm-hmm. in high school, and you would take a little test where you would check off boxes, and they would, you would get a cumulative score at the, end of the, mm-hmm. at the end of the test. And then there was a box of booklets that were numbered according to your score as to what career would be like the, the best for you. And I got journalist and librarian. <laughs> and... So I Not too far off. Huh? I dipped into right. the box. There was a booklet for writer, but you took it out of the box and you opened it up and it said, pick another booklet. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, uh, because it said, well, you know, a working writer makes $3,000 a year. Sounds pretty tasty. And this was like in the 60s. <laughs> right, you know? And yeah. it hasn't changed much, has it? <laughs> you know? it not. Uh, uh so not. Uh, but uh, uh, I hastened to point out at this stage that uh, writing is the only way I have ever made a living, mm-hmm. with three marginal exceptions that go way back in time, and two of them don't count because they're writing related. Okay, and they were what? both jobs working in bookstores.
1: Ah, okay.
0: I also hasten to point out that I was fired from all three of these legitimate <laughs> jobs. <laughs> yes. uh, the third one, the uh, the second one was working for a magazine. The third one was working for uh, uh, a phone solicitation service that oh, I quit God. after a day and a half.
1: I did the same thing. Uh, Owen Mills. (laughs) It It was was the most soul-destroying
0: labor that I could conceive of, and I thought, anything's got to be better than this. I didn't
1: even wait around for the paycheck. No. It was so hideous.
0: I (laughs) waited around for the paycheck because I needed that 25 (laughs) bucks. Yes. I needed that 25 bucks. And so... And I was living in Tucson when this happened. Yeah. I was almost a stringer for UPS. That would have been an really? interesting career. That yeah. That would have been great. I came like this, this close. I, w- I made it to the office with all the teletypes in it, you know, and everything. Well, you were art director
1: on Cinefantastique Fantastique in its hands. Yes, I was.
0: Yeah. I was the second employee of the magazine after Jeff Frenson. Jeff, oh. in fact, hired me. And so if you remember as far back as the. The Forbidden Planet issue, the big double issue, and the issue with the primevals and, and that's I yeah, that's where I did lay out. Yeah. So a day job. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it had something job, to do yeah. because I thought that if I couldn't write fiction, I could write nonfiction and you were writing the same sort of thing at the same time mm-hmm. for many of the same markets. Yeah. We submitted stuff to Take One magazine and Film Comment, you yeah, know, and all yeah. of those those things. And we were both you and I were both published fairly early on in and uh, Ciné Fantastique. Yeah. And yeah. that leads me to back to the seven. I have two dream episodes of Postmortem I want to do. Yeah. One of them is the one where I get to interview you. <laughs> And the other one is where you get to interview the boyfriends, girlfriends, significant others, and spouses of the people that you think are really famous.
1: (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll keep those. Think about that. Think about that. On the bucket list. Yeah. But
0: the magazine job, the bookstore job, I I forgave those in my head because they were tangentially related to writing as a career. And all the time that I wasn't doing those jobs, I was at home typing what I thought were stories. Right. And accumulating rejection slips. This will tell you how long ago this was.
1: And experience.
0: I got some terrific rejection scripts. uh, Yeah, I bet. Rejection scripts. Rejection rejection slips. uh, uh, Some of them incredibly encouraging. And when you're starting out like that and when nobody's giving you money for words that you put on paper, it's like, I made this shit up and they paid me.
1: Yeah, that's currency.
0: You know? and the first time they do it you're doomed and and uh the first time it happened to me was i sold an article to uh the arizona daily star wow in tucson yeah. about how people were kind of insane to sit around sunbathing all day because it could be bad for your skin <laughs> yeah and what i did not realize was that this gave the arizona daily star weekend section an excuse to print two entire pages of women in bikinis <laughs>
1: yes
0: the ulterior motive. So I got my byline in color ink, Mick. Yay. Color ink. Wow. You know, and, and then I, I sent it to the paper and they sent me, I was expecting a rejection slip and a, an envelope plops in the mail, opened it up and a check for like 50 bucks fell out.
1: <gasps> a and it windfall.
0: Was like, Wait a minute. And that was kind of the do or die stage, the publisher perish right. stage, if you will. If I can't get people to pay me for this, I'm just going to die.
1: And that broke that streak.
0: Yeah. Within six months, I sold my first fiction. Yeah. To the first market I submitted it to. Was that Galileo? That was Galileo Magazine. Yeah. They yeah. bought a novelette from me yeah. for a staggering $225. Well, a novelette is a pretty
1: major first-time sale, Well, the,
0: well the letter that I got back from on, on Galileo was, We love this story, and we want to publish it. Next line if you could very 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 carefully cut about 4000 words out of <laughs> oh
1: wow <laughs> okay well so that's that.
0: the devil's deal that you do with writing you know it's always you can have what you want but you have to play that ball
1: well you spent years writing fiction uh before getting into the writing of screen uh, screenplays and teleplays so <laughs> tell me where the love of words first came from, and then when
0: you decided you wanted to write for the screen. I didn't. I thought that if I could get published, here's how close I would come to the movies. This was my estimate of how close I could come to the movie biz. Because I knew that they bought books and made movies out of them. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I wrote a book that somebody maybe bought, that would be the way in. Turns out that's not the way it happened at all. (laughs) Yes. It's like, now where does this come from? It comes from a love of reading. Right. Uh, 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 there are, we are seeing readers drop all around us. You know, uh, it is difficult to even have conversations with people who have read the same things because there are so many things to read, and now. so many people not reading any, and so them. many people not reading anyway. So how do you start that yeah. that conversation? And it was like, I want to do that. I read science fiction writers. I read I read Edgar Allan Poe. I read Lovecraft. I read Harlan Ellison. I read Theodore Sturgeon. I read Robert Silverberg. I read vonnegut. Uh, uh, I you know I went through what to me were the classics like the the Salinger books Catch twenty two those kind of things oh yeah you know so many
1: people within the genre restrict themselves to the genre and miss so much great work whether it's books or film or and television. and
0: they also waste a lot of their time reading Chum
1: yes <laughs> in
0: the name of loyalty to the genre right you know what I mean it's hard enough let's talk about horror books it's hard enough to find a good one. Yeah, and I just read a spectacular one. What is it? That is decades old. Ah, okay. I had never, I had never read it before. Which is Anne River Siddons' "The House Next Door," possibly the best haunted house novel ever written. Wow. Okay. At least up there with Shirley Jackson.
1: Okay, that's on my list
0: because the house is brand new. Hmm. Excellent. And what I love about that book is the structure of it. And if you read it, you'll see what I'm talking about. I will. I promise. But we could talk about books all day here. Well, we-,
1: we have an hour to talk about all kinds okay. of media. Okay, so, okay. But, so- uh, you know, th- th- you established yourself as a fiction author, and you attained a special renown, coining the term splatterpunk and creating a movement of extremely um, graphic horror uh, fiction, and... I got my first commission for a story for the book Silver Scream, which is considered the ultimate Splatterpunk collection.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, and, and it's like, and it's like, Mickey, you have a story. Did you know uh, that we got this close to getting a story from Cronenberg for that book?
1: Really? Yeah. Well, I do remember you talking about he it. He sent way me a
0: very then. nice letter. I'm sorry. I'm busy. I'm doing a film. And it's like, Oh, we
1: missed it by that much. <laughs> yes. You know?
0: Um, um where were we? Like, well, we were talking about
1: Splatterpunk. So tell me what the reaction was. What what happened well, now at that, that See, that's yeah. jumping
0: ahead almost a decade. Oh, I know. On I the know. timeline. And it's like, uh, 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 one of the things I think that we need to mention in the interim is you can't have Splatterpunk without a boom period in horror. And what's the boom period in horror? The boom period in horror is the time between the time people knew who Stephen King was mm-hmm. and the time... People knew who Clive Barker was, right? And one of the one of the fundamental things in that time period was a magazine called Twilight Zone Magazine. Yeah. Rod Serling's the Twilight Zone Magazine, the most cumbersome title ever given to a magazine in the history right. of which, of course, was title.
1: published long after he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and whom uh, I and who I. Interviewed when I was in You're high back school. Back when you were, yeah. yeah,
0: when you were first doing interviews with rock bands <laughs> and stuff, school, you talked. You actually talked to Serling. What was I that did. like?
1: It was amazing. It was amazing. It was after he had done a lecture at my college or a local college, the one I would attend later. And he was very short, and he was really kind of uh, pugnacious, and constantly smoking.
0: Was he very tan when you met? Very him? tan. Yeah.
1: And uh, he'd been a boxer, hence Requiem
0: for a heavyweight. Yeah, he'd won like 18 <clears throat> fights. Yeah, yeah. And Before he got a his bantamweight, nose broken, yeah. Bantamweight,
1: very tiny. And smoking constantly. And, and one of the things I remember distinctly talking about was he, he talked about how he always had a cigarette in his hand because he was nervous when he would do his introductions to the Twilight Zone. And that that clipped way he delivered his lines was out of nervousness, and and that's why he would take a drag every now and then, because he was very uncomfortable on camera.
0: I think if you read the book that Ann Sterling, his daughter, wrote, you know, my, my Father as I as I Knew Him, yeah. it, be, it gradually becomes very clear that Rod had at least mild PTSD, mm. uh, because he was one of those guys who was constantly surging onto the next thing. Right. And couldn't sit still and had to keep moving and had to keep, you know, like my dad, like a chain smoker, you know, one of those World War II guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, but in that period that we're talking about, you have the Twilight Zone magazine and the Twilight Zone magazine was a product of an invisible uh, benefactor to the field that a lot of people don't know. But some people do know his name, and that's Kirby McCauley. Right. Kirby was like the super agent of Steve King and Peter Straub and all that. Kirby edited The Dark Forces, that Mm -hmm. seminal, scary anthology. And he filled it full of his clients. Right.
1: And they were great.
0: And it was (laughs) like, bam, horror has arrived. Well, Kirby was responsible for getting Twilight Zone magazine off the launch pad. And Twilight Zone magazine published more astonishingly good horror fiction in a shorter period of time it lasted 8 years yeah and it was the last major national market for s- scary stories you know before then if you wanted to read something by you could read something by Charles Beaumont in Playboy you could read something by Ray Bradbury in Saturday Evening Post and it was like the next day's water cooler conversation but this was as big as horror got in the magazine field written absolutely. horror absolutely yeah. yeah and and to this day uh, about About a decade ago, uh, Joe Lansdale and I suggested the idea of there needs to be a big book of stories from Twilight Zone magazine because everybody was in it. Why has there not been? No interest. Yeah. No interest. Uh, Collections. We couldn't get anybody to do it.
1: Yeah, it's really hard, other than the specialized small press. And that was the first place where I read guys
0: like Lucius Shepard and guys like Lou Shiner and names that may be a mystery to you, dear listener. (laughs) But... Uh, uh, take it from me, uh, they're all spectacular writers, uh, yeah. Lou in particular. Now, I don't know if you're ready for this, but Lou published a book this year called Outside the Gates of Eden, hmm. about a band that goes to Woodstock. Oh, And it is this 900-page epic that wow. follows 30 years of the whole bunch of members of this tight family that aren't related to each other it is the best novel i have read in the past five years really that yeah. sounds epic yeah yeah and i think generationally if nothing else interests you about it you should dip your toe into it and see if you like it for sure
1: especially coming out of and that that's a Woodstock shout out to my generation. that's a
0: shout out to my brother lou but
1: yeah but i, I you know as a member of that generation and the, the music scene you were in a band that, yeah absolutely i saw photos i have proof <laughs> yeah, there's proof out there um but let's talk about Splatterpunk and sure. how that was kind of what was wrought in the 70s with the arrival of Stephen King and then in the 80s with Clive Barker and things like that. The, the Silver Scream, I think, was 88 or so. 88. Yeah, it was 88. Sure. And
0: Splatterpunk. Clive was in it.
1: it Clive was in, the, the revelation for me was, I wonder if I could be so uncensored as these guys allow themselves to be, Clive's horror was so graphic and so deeply rooted and in places that would be embarrassing to tap mm-hmm. that I thought, let's see if I can go that far with my story,
0: uh, A Life in the Cinema. And A Life in the Cinema, which, by the way, has the best one-line sex scene i've ever read in a horror story i was squeezing her implants and filling her with my goo (laughs) thank you
1: (laughs) um but i decided to just go for broke and just be completely uncensored and unencumbered
0: so when you're writing that story now do you feel of do you feel uh, did you get a feeling of trespass like you were crossing a boundary or something I was oh, like completely. oh do I dare do this completely
1: I did and then when the book came out I found it was the most extreme it <laughs> went places none of these really really adventurous splatterpunk folks like yourself yeah, and they Lansdale thought they, were punky.
0: And they thought they were splattery they thought they were punky
1: oh yeah with the mutant baby sex the mutant baby that, mutant was... shit eating baby yes there was that uh, uh, but so but, I was like embarrassed all over again because I went further
0: than. I am so wanted. proud that story is in the book. yours? <laughs> I'm particularly proud of and Lansdale's. Oh yeah, the night they missed because Silver Scream was the first place of the night they missed the horror show. It's such a what, masterpiece. Was published. Yeah, and it it's has great. been published maybe a hundred times since then. You know, republished. Right, but you don't have Splatterpunk without the Twilight Zone magazine. Yeah, because. The the story you and Lansdale and-, and John Skip first published Skip, in Twilight yeah. Zone, and uh, 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 then Ted Klein left as editor. And Ted, in fact, was the first guy we used to talk on the phone a lot. And Ted and I were talking on the phone one day, and every t- every so often I would have these revelatory conversations with him. And one of them was, Ted goes, ah, "Dave, have you ever heard of this guy named?" Clive Barker, <laughs> and a week later he sent me uh, the British paperbacks of Books of Blood. Yeah, they all showed up in the mail, and I thought, oh man, we're all going to have to up our game. <laughs> they are masterpieces. It, it, it was a knockout. It yeah. was a knockout, and the Damnation Game was a knockout. His a first fantastic, novel, fantastic,
1: fantastic novel. Um, so the the thing that kind of made Clive in this country, if not around the world was a quote from Stephen King that was on those books of
0: blood. Yeah, because I've seen The Future of Horror and it's Clive Barker. His yeah. name is Clive Barker, yeah. And so... Actually, Ber- actually, Berkeley Books called up Steve and, said, and told him the way Steve tells it. Uh, he, he, sa- he said, can we say you said this? And he said, really? Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. That's... It's like, the actual quote is like a paraphrase of whatever it was he said at some ah. uh, speech or something. But Ted left as editor and Tappan King came in as editor who was the husband of Beth Meacham who was an editor at Tor Books at the time Mm -hmm. and uh, Tappan loved the idea of a movement in horror and it was just good timing we had a lot of photo ops Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden
1: all the guys in black leather all
0: all the guys in black leather and then all of a sudden everybody else in horror hated us and we had (laughs) ruined horror for everybody (laughs) Yes, because it wasn't elevated. <laughs> it wasn't wearing the little tassel loafers, and it yes, wasn't. It about, wasn't in the Carpathian Mountains. Well, I like to say, you know, they like to say that that, uh, that you know, like uh, Steve took horror and put it in suburbia, and I like to say Splatterpunk took horror and put it back in the gutter where it belongs. <laughs> so, how would you
1: describe Splatterpunk in a sentence or
0: two? Only, things? only in terms of, uh, I would first describe it as a publicity stunt. I would second describe it as just. Exactly the way you describe your story is like push it to an extreme, write what makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. If there's one thing that I think the world could use less of in the field of scary stories, and people are going to hate me for this, horror comedy. We don't need so much of it.
1: Oh, so many of them are neither funny nor scary. And they
0: just try to remake Evil Dead 2 over and over again,
1: or spoof other horror films
0: now Robert yeah. Bloch said humor and horror are opposite sides of the same coin I right. get that true because that's the same tension release structures but does everything have to be funny and mm. family friendly yeah. no g13 horror comedy no yeah. no because one of the most disturbing movies ever I ever saw was uh 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 uh, still one of my favorite horror films to this day, although it's not supernatural horror, mm-hmm. is uh, Tras el Cristal in a glass cage. Oh, right. You know, mm-hmm. but if you want my if you want my nominee for something a, a, a little more recent vintage that hits all the right marks, uh, I'll go to my go to uh, Brad Anderson Session 9. Ah,
1: uh, fantastic. Yeah. And I would go to Dead Ringers, Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. It's completely not well, supernatural have you seen, Have all. you seen
0: Antiviral?
1: I have, yes. It's kind of like Thirst in a
0: way. I haven't seen it yet. I'm uh, dying to see it. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, and, and, yeah, and everything Cronenberg did. Yeah. But when you and I first met, you were so high on Cronenberg that I yeah. absorbed. Every, I had chicken a la Cronenberg at your house. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, when I was working in publicity at Avco Embassy, I used to I yeah. used to hang out with uh, when Mick was working on the the lot at Universal. I used to show up at least once a week to try to get lunch or something, and. uh Mick and I invented a thing called the Universal Studios Tour Tram Dodge. Yes. <laughs> uh, when, they, when you had your offices in the bungalows in, yeah. in the back, we would go to lunch at the commissary.
1: That's when I was at uh, Amazing Stories. That's yeah. right.
0: And yeah. that's when also when you inaugurated the only issue of the Fantasy Science Fiction and Horror Newsletter. Yes. At the, at the, which I still have a copy of. At the studio. Um, we would wait for the Universal Tour Trams. We would go to the commissary. We, we would wait for the Tour Trams to go by. And when the tour trams would go by, Mick and I would run out of the office and cover our faces.
1: Yeah, we'd turn away as if, yeah. oh, we don't want to be recognized. Oh, please, no photographs. <laughs> so I
0: guarantee <laughs> you our photographs are enshrined in thousands of Japanese scrapbooks. Yeah, there's but- <laughs> no doubt. Well, let's go into movies. Uh, you know,
1: probably in Did movies- we choke off the other topic, or did we no, just abandon it? No, no, it's it? just we've got an hour to fill, and oh, uh, oh, okay. we'll go all over okay. the place. And, okay. and we don't have to go in order either. But Oh, um, good. What. In film, you're probably best known as writing *The Crow*. And Agreed. how how did that come about? Which We just had the
0: 25th anniversary That's of right. At the, it's a, yeah at 94. the Sleepy Hollow Film Festival in Sleepy Hollow, New York. Wow, how was that? Spectacular! It sounds like it. So
1: so tell <laughs> me about how that all came together. And we all know the tragedy of Brandon Lee, and you were there at the time.
0: Oh yeah, Brandon's a friend. As I think of I think of him. Uh, every day we had the worst thing that could possibly happen to you on the set of a movie happen to us. Yeah. You know, you and I have friends ask them, you know, this, you know, it doesn't happen that often when it happens, it's, you it's, know, it is. It's, it's, it's dire. But uh, like I said to a, a, a the director, we, we had a, uh, an opportunity to put Brandon in the ground and the film, or we had an, an opportunity to resurrect the film and have it stand as some kind of legacy. Ultimately two of the actors talked Alex into finishing the film because he wanted to shit can it. Really? And yeah. uh it kept it completely it understandable. That, that close to never coming out at all. That's so painful. And then look at the you know, look at the following that yeah. that has that has grown.
1: Well tell me about how it came about and why and am I writing the crow? It. Well, how the project came to be from the uh, graphic novel stuff and the like. But how you became involved in it and what the evolution was from your typewriter, keyboard, whatever mm-hmm. you worked on 25 years ago, to the manual typewriter. A <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I thought.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we have to step back one step earlier. How did I start writing scripts?
1: Well, there's that. Yes. You know, it's
0: like because you don't get considered to write the Crow unless you have some kind of. Kind of credibility. Right. And it's directly related to the printed fiction in the most unlikely scenario you could ever possibly imagine. When people are talking to you and they say, So, Mick, have you got any advice on how I can break into script writing and avoid doing all the work? And, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I already know I'm a genius. Yes. Know, that kind of thing. Um, Mike DeLuca at New Line was a fan of my fiction. Ah. And he called me up one day and he said, Hey, you want to come over here and write a Freddy movie for us? Right. You know? And, uh, uh, and I said, uh, sure. And, uh, I wrote a treatment. This was when this, this, this is for the movie that eventually became nightmare on Elm street, part five, the dream child. Right. And, uh, uh, I wrote a two page treatment called Freddy rules. (laughs) And, uh, they said, we like this treatment. We want you to write this movie. We want to hire you. Uh, go across the hall and give them your social security number. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, we need to see a screenplay you've written. <laughs> and I was the only schmuck in Hollywood without a script in his back pocket. Right, right. This, despite the fact that earlier, you and I sat in your house, uh, or your, your, the apartment before the Camarillo house. Right. We sat in your apartment and we plotted... To write scripts. I remember yeah. this because you were going to write a script called Fear Itself. <laughs> yep. And I was going to write a script called Life of the Party. Right. and oh, uh, I remember very Which well. I never wrote that script. And if I had, I probably would have gotten Nightmare 5. Right. And so, I
1: wrote Fear Itself, which never got made, but I used the
0: title for the reboot of, the, of Masters, Masters of, of horror, horror that yeah. went into the toilet. Yeah. yeah. Well, not your fault. <laughs> no. And, and uh, so... We in defeat. We go back to the new line office, and I think, what are we going to do now? And, and Mike said, "Stop me when you've heard this one." Mike said, "Well, we got to get you on Freddy's Nightmares."
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the we, show that I directed the second episode after Toby directed the Killer Instinct. Yeah, Killer Instinct. And
0: Instant. and uh, so here we troop out to this dire studio out in Sun Valley which was next to this depressing little bar called The Web, mm-hmm. where DeLuca and I because shot a lot it was of pool. Web, yeah, it was yeah. Web Avenue. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And uh, the sound stages were about the size of this office. <laughs> and and cheap, oh my
1: God. You know, Shot in it, 16 millimeter. They were shot in like, well, they were hour-long shows, but they comprised two half-hour this, stories.
0: Th- this was a brilliance of the, the packagers who said, well, if you shoot hours, but if you have two different... If you cut the story in the middle and use the same characters so we can say it's two shows instead of one, we get to a syndication package quicker. Exactly. That way. Yep. And boy, what a dumb idea <laughs> yeah. that that was. Because these things would do a gear shift right in the middle and you're going, what the hell Yeah, they happened? were supposed to stand alone, the two halves. Yeah, yeah, and they rarely did. Yeah. Or they were rarely coherent, you know, for, for well, that there's matter. there's that, yeah. But having tried to, you know, to break into script writing and I don't know how many false starts you had, but you, I was following the, the, uh, the rules of the treatment that I wrote for a new line. I said, I got to dope this out because I, I had written tie-ins and novelizations and they saying, you got to give us the whole plot before we give you a go and pay you and you write a book in four weeks. Right. You know? Um, and I said, now I got to dope this plot out and, and, uh, uh, uh Jeff uh, Freilich, the producer, yes, uh, would say, mm, that's too close to one we have already. Right. Shit, you know, I just wasted another night. Yes, uh, That one's like, yeah, that's good, but no, nothing like that. And it always, you work your ass off, and it always boils down to uh, you're sitting on the sofa in the producer's office. You're sitting where you're sitting, and I'm sitting on the sofa, and I'm saying, say, Jeff, what if uh, there was this goth chick and Freddie was her dream date? Mm-hmm. And he goes, <laughs> write it. Go for it. And you were lucky enough to do one that Freddie was in it. Yeah, I had a Freddie show. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a Freddie uh, episode. Uh, and subsequently, uh, as a result of this, I wrote the last show of the first season, mm-hmm. which was called Safe Sex. And believe me, folks, you don't need to see it. It's incoherent. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, January 1989, uh, within uh, the day that I delivered that script... Within 24 hours of me handing them that script and proving that I could write in the script form, they hired me to do Leatherface, which was their next horror movie. Right. So my first TV script and my first feature script not only got bought, but produced.
1: Right. At New Line. At New Line.
0: And we did uh, the Chainsaw movie that was so censored, it was (laughs) delayed. It missed its premiere window because it was so grotesquely violent that they cut really? it to death. And we did the Freddy's Nightmares episode that was so sexual, they had to cut eight minutes out of it. Wow. Well, I remember mine uh,
1: was edited by the local Channel 9 station. When they ran it, they edited it, and they violated. allowed to
0: do that. Yeah, they did it in violation of the... In violation to of the it.
1: DGA rules and everything else. And when they re-ran it, they had to do it that way. But... Um, you know, the the whole Freddie's uh, Nightmare show was about pushing buttons and being rude and being funny and all that. So. And just having an excuse
0: yeah. to see Freddie on TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're chugging away at this, and, and now I'm taking meetings and seeing people. I remember uh, I had to account for myself by getting an agent, and I, re- I met you and Richard Christian Matheson in a restaurant on Melrose, mm. where you pitched me at your agent at CAA. John Levin then, at the time, yeah. That's right. And uh, so this is all chugging along. And I get a call from a guy. Uh, do you remember Mark Ordesky? Sure. You remember Mark's first wife, Jill? No. Okay. Jill was the assistant to a guy named Cotty Chubb. Oh, yeah. Chubb.
1: Yes, who I worked for doing The Mummy at Universal. That's for, yeah. the, for
0: Jim Jacks. For Jim
1: Jacks yeah. and Cotty Chubb. And Sean uh, and Daniel. And Sean Daniel, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and, uh, um she suggested me to Cotty because there's a bunch the, of names that nobody out there <laughs> has any connection to. These are names to, but you'll see the in hell. the credits of the, of the of, Mummy movie of, from yeah. like 20, literally 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, the Brendan but, Fraser. Uh, uh, um, she suggested me to Cotty because they wanted to make a movie with uh, Penelope Ferris called Deadly Metal, about a heavy metal band that eats its groupies.
1: And you had written a book called Kill Riff,
0: right. which was a rock and roll horror novel which was about a guy knocking off the members of a heavy metal band. There you go. uh, My first published novel. Yeah. And uh, so I went for the meeting with Cotty. We had this great meeting with Penelope, and we said, we're going to do the film. We're going to start the film. We're going to make it look like a fake installment of Decline of Western Civilization, but it's actually a fictional story. <laughs> uh, so it's, you
1: fool it with a fake uh, You start with the light bulb and the guy talking. Yeah.
0: yeah, you pretend like it's a documentary, and it never came to pass. Hmm. Uh, but what Cod- a shock. But Cotty thought of me when he moved over to Pressman, and uh, John Shirley had written the first script from For the Crow based on the James O'Barr comic book, which right. was incomplete at that time. Hmm. We only had three issues and a set of incomplete pencils on the last two. And uh, Ed decided uh, they wanted to use another writer. Uh, Cotty called me, and then for the next two years, I wrote that movie. Wow. Uh, In close concert with Alex Proyas, in close concert with Brandon. uh, And
1: and how about Obar? Was he involved during the process? He was not involved in
0: writing the script. Okay. No, he was just involved in, in, in licensing, and he came out while we were... While we were shooting, and in fact, if you look real quick in the movie, you can see uh, uh, you can see James running off with the TV after the pawn shop is being looted <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, in the movie. But we worked on it literally from mid to late '91 mm-hmm. through uh, January '93, which is when prep started in uh, North Carolina. And I was there from the beginning of prep through the entire... I was I was in North Carolina for 104 days. Yeah, you were on set
1: every day. Yeah. All day, every day, which is rare for a screenwriter to have that opportunity.
0: And, of course, if that kind of thing happens to you, then what's the next thing that happens to you? You expect that's going to happen on every project you work and on, And you're right? barred from the set. Yeah, yeah, right. Get out of here! Yeah.
1: Well, later on, we worked together again on, on Masters of Horror, where you wrote Tom Holland's episode and... Uh, Larry's. Larry Cohen's, uh, the last thing Larry Cohen directed.
0: But that was strictly at your invitation. You called me up. Yeah, I hired you. you. Yeah, yeah, you know, I said, I know the story I want to do. I know, I know that it's, this is the one I want you to do. Uh, And uh, boy, that show came out good. uh, I love Masters of Horror. I think it should still be going to this day. Thank you.
1: Well, a lot of people say things, oh, it's terrible. It was only two seasons and the like, but I'd rather go out with 26 great shows than uh, you know another 13 making it to 39 shitty ones. You know, mm-hmm. would it, you
0: rather be you know still doing it now and watching the orbital decay of your concept yeah, I and mean, being like Serling with Twilight Zone? I just want to get out. Yeah,
1: I, I I want to revel in those two seasons that we had and not regret what we didn't have. You know, it, it was really kind of magical and and a one of a kind experience. Mm-hmm. You know. So, let's talk a little about um franchises because of Freddy, mm-hmm. because of Critters, because of uh, all Leatherface. E- e- yeah. All uh, mm-hmm. there's plenty of franchises you've been involved in. Tell me a little about the process of that and the masters that have to be served.
0: Well, and you may know this from the stuff that you've worked on as well, but it's like it's that's a little different. I remember going in uh, I wrote two drafts of Freddie vs Jason for mm-hmm. Brian Witten mm-hmm. in the mid '90s, and to do that, you have to go have a meeting with Sean Cunningham. Right. right. You know, this is how Jason is, and this, is, right. Right, right, right. who so, directed the first one, but produced the rest. Right, yeah. and so you've got going in. It, it's a very it's a very explanatory title because. Going in, you've got the two fat. You've got the Jason facet of the production and the Freddie facet of the production at war constantly. Right. You know for screen time. You know for, for well not for lines because Jason doesn't have any lines, right. but you know how much screen time does he have and stuff. And Jason's not nearly as witty as Freddie. Uh, no, no. <laughs> although although I love that that time uh, 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 on the Arsenio Hall show, Jason was a guest once. Oh. I didn't and see he that. showed up and he just stood there and breathed. That works, you know. And then <laughs> on, on another show, he had the dancers from uh, Robert Palmer's "Addicted to Love," and they just oh, yeah. they just danced around. They didn't say anything. <laughs> Classic. Uh, but but uh, you're a lot more forgiving because what you're doing at that point uh, in the service of a franchise is more a matter of allowing them to rent your ability to write something that would have gotten written anyway, mm-hmm. whether you were involved or not. Right. And then secondarily, seeing if you can push those boundaries in a different way, kind of put your stamp on it or have a line you like or a moment you like. Uh, it's not as demanding and you're not trying to write a masterpiece. But when you sit down to write, say, for example, Freddy versus Jason, you're trying to write the best Freddy versus Jason movie you can possibly write, of given course. the limitations of those characters. How do you write a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre?
1: Exactly. So you've, you've done Freddy, you've done Jason, you've done Weatherface, you've done Critters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of franchise.
0: Well, I came on to Critters after you did Critters 2.
1: Right. and You wrote Critters 3 and 4, yet, which were shot for direct-to-video, back-to-back.
0: Back-to-back in yeah. a supermarket on Pico Boulevard. Is that where it was uh, shot? Because <laughs> you know, we went in there, and there was leftover props from uh, Hulk Hogan's Suburban Commando still in the supermarket. Oh, my God. But a, uh, I can't remember the name of the production designer. Uh, on Oh,
1: uh, was it... Um, um, three names. Yes. Phil- British guy. Yeah, Philip... Uh, uh, it's Philip Dean
0: Foreman. Foreman, That's yeah, it. yeah. Uh, um, Very talented guy. He made us the best space station for no money. Yeah, that you've ever seen. I shot. I shot video of it. I shot a walkthrough. Well, he built us the it. town of Grover's Bend for critters
1: yeah. too, with nothing.
0: I went yeah. out there. I watched you shoot, shoot some of that movie. That's where yeah. I met Barry Corbin. Was on that on oh, that on that the, set. The late, not late. The, the great. Now, who Barry was Corbin? the murderer? that was at large while you were shooting critters too because nobody wanted to take the highway out to that set oh i don't remember it was golden that. state or i5 or oh, something oh really Is the i5, it was the killer. i-5 yeah, killer yeah the killer? i5 really? killer was no. still at large when you were shooting i don't remember
1: that because i had to go out there every day well you so. had other things to think about <laughs> i was preoccupied
0: but um in the case of uh, uh, in the case of leatherface i made the mistake of a say i said you know, we, we got we to bow at the altar of, of uh, Toby yeah. here. And I want to write something really, if not serious, as horrible as it can possibly be. Right, right. And it got a little compromised. Yeah, and yeah. and I never, it didn't learn my lesson because I got hired again to write uh, Chainsaw the Beginning uh, oh, for, yes. for Michael Bay, you yeah. know, for Platinum Dunes. Yeah. And I thought, this one is going to be the balls out Chainsaw movie of all time. And it's based on how a slaughterhouse works. And it's for a major studio.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they are kind of at loggerheads with one another and when it comes to extreme... Because Ordesky,
0: who who got me... But, but, but uh, to his credit, Mark Ordesky uh, went off to New Zealand to bring Lord of the Rings to the world. Right. Fine line. So I don't hear from Mark for like eight years. Hmm. And finally, Lord of the Rings is done. He comes back. Phone rings. It's Mark. And he goes, Okay, so where were we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... He said, no, no, I'm serious. Come down to the office. And uh, so we we catch up and he goes and there's this pile of scripts on the shelf down there. And he reaches down and you know how uh, uh, you take the magic marker and you try to scrawl the name of the movie on the the spine of the script. Yeah. Uh, uh, He he goes, you're going to hate me, you know, and he pulls it off and I see upside down. It says chainsaw, you know, Oh no, you know, here we go. Here we go again. And so flash forward from that, I said, if you're in, I'm in. You know, let's, let's do it. Now let's go sell this movie to Michael Bay. Okay. Uh, in 15 minutes while he's shooting a movie. Oh, great. Which uh, one was he shooting? He was shooting The Island. Okay. At the time, he was shooting The Island in a defrocked airplane manufacturing plant in Downey, oh, where he God. had bu- built a 500,000 foot, square foot set he doesn't with, do anything small working elevator so we yeah. get on the outside and we're walking 10 minutes later we're still walking we're still not at the middle of the set <laughs> you know and i have to say it was great because he would michael would call action cut and then he and i would run off into this corner and i would wave my arms at him and he would wave his arms at me and then he would run back to the monitors and he would go action <laughs> cut and so this went on for like 15 minutes perfect and and it was like done you know, uh, 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 you're hired. Now, you've been on sets. I've been on sets. We know how to behave on sets, right? Yeah. So I'm standing here just watching a little shooting of the movie, and AD walks over to me, and he goes, uh, don't stand here. And it's like, oh, fuck, what did I do? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I, oh, no. He goes, no, it's it's not you. He goes, this is where Michael throws the monitor when he gets mad. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, and then and then ultimately, have you seen... Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I love that film. Boy, do I love Shane Black scripts, and boy, oh, do I love yeah. Kiss Kiss Bang oh, Bang.
1: it's my favorite Shane Black.
0: Remember Robert Downey Jr. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? So good,
1: so fantastic. Remember
0: why he gets hired to come out to Hollywood in that in that movie? He gets hired to lower the price of the actor they really want. Oh yes, right. That's what happened to me on Chainsaw the beginning. (laughs) Oh okay. Six months of work to whip the original writer into shape. Oh good. You know, so not a lot of that made it onto the screen. But I wrote two of the best. Chainsaw movies. He said, in my humble opinion, yes. y- you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, scripts, n- scripts, yeah. yeah. But who among us does not have the story of the scripts you think are fabulous that are never going to see the light of day? We could oh, do, yeah, we could do five whole shows on every that. writer around, yeah. Um, you've got them, I've got them, absolutely. Um,
1: well, let's talk a little about Larry Cohen because we miss him so much. He I love was Larry one from the minute I met guy. him, yeah, and uh, he. Loved having you on the set because he was a writer himself. And this was based on one of your short stories, too, right? Yeah, you picked
0: yeah, it. I remember. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and Larry paid me, if you know anything about Larry Cohen, and we talked about this in the documentary a little bit, too, yeah. King Cohen. Uh, if you know anything about Larry, um, he paid me the greatest compliment he could possibly pay me. But he said, this is the first script that I'm directing that I haven't written myself. Yeah. And and if you know anything about Larry's method and his output, that is just astonishing. It is. And the guy guy was just, he was independent film school in a can. All you have to do (laughs) is follow him around.
1: He'd never worked with a union crew type situation before either. He was always his own boss. He was writer, producer, director. I mean, he'd worked in early days, golden years of television in the 60s with the Defenders and the like. But... He was such a unique guy, and he did such an amazing job. He had a great script to work with. Um, I'll tell you my last days of Larry Cohen. um, We had put together a Masters of Horror dinner because he kept asking for one. I had known that he was dying. He wouldn't tell anybody else. He let me know. He said he really was hoping to have another Masters dinner, and I put one together. It was a little too late. Two days before the dinner, um, it was clear that he was ill, too ill to go, and he was planning to all week. Bill Malone and I went to visit him at his house, and we went into his bedroom, and he was in, in bed, and he was lying on his side. He lifted his head up and went, goodbye, and waved goodbye, and then collapsed on the bed. And then started laughing because oh he was God. fucking with us. <laughs> he died the next day, Ugh. and he was such an amazing guy. That is such a Larry guy. thing. It's so completely Larry Cohen.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, we, we were up uh, shooting Masters of Horror in Vancouver, and, and he's like, and we, and we were free on the weekends, yeah. and he goes, "Let's go to the movies," <laughs> you know. And so we went to see uh, uh, Lord of War. Ah. Okay. Up there. So me and Larry Cohen went to see Go you know like, like, yeah. like, like, like Lord of War, but watching this guy work.
1: Yeah, tell me about it.
0: You know, that was like you know you have video village. You have all of these uh, uh, not pretensions, but all of this furniture on which you sell people of the, you know, the fantasy of movie making and the big right. crew and everything. And you have video village. Larry's never there. Uh, he's always six feet away from the actors he doesn't watch playbacks because that wastes time he doesn't watch dailies Uh, we would get the dailies on disc and he would hand them over his shoulder to me and say go to my trailer and watch these tell me if they're any good (laughs) he knows the takes he wants when he shoots them it is all in his head yeah watching that guy work was miraculous yeah and I'm so happy that we were able to get together with him at the bookstore last uh, February which is the last time I saw him yeah and uh, you know i'm just so glad we were able to see him you know one more time signing stuff
1: an amazing guy selling it, stuff containers yeah stuff. <laughs> exactly i have one up on my shelf and right we there.
0: have one as an easter egg in our episode of creep show
1: ah well uh, that's what i wanted to get into next was because you know speaking of franchises creep show existed before now it's a television show now it's back it's back and you and Greg Nicotero
0: have been friends forever. I've known Greg since before there was a KNB.
1: Right. And so Greg, the N in KNB, uh, Greg and I have been friends for a long time and worked together a lot. But you wrote The Finger, which he directed an episode of Creepshow. And I, I haven't seen every episode, but it's by far my favorite.
0: It seems to be the favorite of a lot of people because Bob, the little critter from the finger. Mm-hmm. He blew up on Twitter in uh, one day. Uh, everybody wants okay. Bob plushies and stuff. Now. <laughs> but this is not the first time everybody has wanted Bob plushies. Mm-hmm. Because I adapted that story for Sandy Carpenter.
1: Ah, uh, for the comic for book? For the
0: comic book, John Carpenter's Tales for a Halloween Night Volume 2. Uh-huh. So that was three years ago. And uh, in that version of the story, Bob is this he looks a lot more like a gargoyle mm-hmm. that you would see on a church with a little pot belly <laughs> and big puppy dog eyes. Ah, he's know. cute. And <sighs> and Sandy had a bumper sticker of Bob made this is I ate your honor student. <laughs> and and Bob became the mascot of uh her uh, uh, line of kids comics book, young adult line of book, comic books that's coming out in uh, December called Storm Kids. Ah, Bob okay. is like the mascot of Storm Kids. He's all over the advertising for it. The, right. the the first version of Bob, Greg picked the finger because he liked the short story, mm-hmm. exactly the same as you, in Masters of Horror. Right, and uh, because a year before we did this, we were plotting to do this. He says, "I've got two shows. Uh, one is Creep Show, and one is uh, Shock Theater." And they're both the same anthology horror shows. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, John Carpenter's Tales for Halloween Night just landed at Paramount as a series. Here we go, and it's like it's who anthology better Village. who better to do this flood tide of anthological horror than you and me? <laughs> yeah, and, you know? yeah. Uh, uh, um, So, and I went out. I, I went out uh, and watched him shoot it. Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: Now, it's similar circumstances to Freddy's Nightmares in that they're doing two episodes per show. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't shot that way, but uh, they were shot as individuals, but coupled yeah. together. Yeah. But on a
0: very limited budget, and they're like three and a half day shoots. An almost non existent budget, and a three and a half day shoot is exactly the same amount of time they took to make an episode of the original Twilight Zone. Right. Okay. Which, hard to imagine. Okay. It's These a, are a little it's a, more effects it's heavy. A, it's a seven it? day shoot, but you but at the helm of the ship you have an effects master. Right. You know? Uh and never have I seen Greg happier than when he was on the set of uh, Creepshow, and he had the gloves on his hands, and he's like, Put more slime on this, put more blood on this. And that's what he's really there for, you know what I mean?
1: And of course, most po- people know of Greg Nicotero because he's the sort of producer and lead director on The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, this is his baby this time entirely.
0: Well, it's also, remember, we we're talking about how much uh, Larry meant to us, and Creepshow is Greg's love letter to George.
1: Yeah, to George Romero.
0: And, and, uh, because I remember sending him this message saying, you know, it's like George would be proud, you know, that, that kind yeah. of thing. And mm-hmm. he really would. He really would. Because here's what I like about Creepshow. Here's what I like about Masters of Horror. It's like you might not like all of these episodes, but the menu is varied. Yes. Why? Because scary stories, horror is not just one flavor. That'd be like a Baskin Robbins with one flavor of ice cream. Yeah, it was my
1: philosophy behind Masters of Horror. Take great filmmakers and let them do what they do. Make them individuals, you know, uh, embrace their uniqueness and their individuality.
0: And you can see echoes of that in Creepshow because John Harrison directed one, Tom Savini directed one, Rob Schwab uh, 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 directed one, and... You may not, like I said, you may not like all of them, but you couldn't hope for a more varied palette
1: yeah that's the point you know nightmare cinema same thing you got a black and I, abs- white one you absolutely. got a horror comedy a really scary funny horror comedy i You've love got, i yeah. love
0: the uh the black and white segment of uh nightmare cinema which was david slade i yeah. believe yeah who also directed metalhead yes for black mirror
1: right the black and white one and that's why he shot his episode in black and white for nightmare cinema because he loved shooting in now black didn't and white.
0: he claim that His equipment couldn't shoot color or something like that? He did. Was that true? uh,
1: Actually, I'd never heard of a camera that only shot black and white before. Me neither, yeah. But apparently it is true. And he shot it that way. And we didn't tell the other producers that, I didn't tell them it was in black and white in case they would have an objection to it until it was too late. And David saying the camera only shot in black and white made it even easier to keep the subterfuge You just presented it
0: to him as a fait accompli. Well, well we that, did. Yeah, that's, that's it's how exactly it what we did. That's how it is. Yeah,
1: and it worked out. So the difference between writing fiction and screen material, tell me what that
0: is to you. Basically, the only real difference is kind of in the margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also depends on the masters you're serving on a particular uh, production because uh, when you're alone with the story that you're writing, the only person who has input on this is you. Right. And as you know, as you pointed out many times, you know, it's like a script. It's like it's like a tree, and everybody's a dog, and they have to come lift their leg on your, <laughs> yes. on, your on your tree. Uh, Turn it yellow. If yeah. you accept that as part of the Operative discipline, you know, you don't get offended unless something really outrageous happens, you you know what I mean? Uh, On the other hand, if you have something that you've completely fabricated yourself, you're shoving it out there in the world, asking people to trust that you can fulfill their expectation of you being able to tell a really good story
1: and they'll put millions of dollars into turning it into a movie or a tv
0: show and they'll cut out all the good parts (laughs) yes
1: but for me there's a, a difference too in that a film script is a blueprint you know all of the the internal machinations that go on in fiction where you're writing about a character's thoughts, his surroundings, all of those things that you weave in words are done in pictures and you can get lost in that in the writing of a Mm -hmm. screenplay. It can be too literary to work as a good screenplay sometimes I've seen.
0: But I'll also cheat uh, when I'll do a screenplay because I'm aware that Nobody wants to read three lines of character description. What they want to read is 20s, blonde, attractive. (laughs) There you go. Okay? But what you do, if you have any kind of a a connection or relationship with the production beyond the writing of the script, what you do, what I do, is I write character sheets for the actors. Mm -hmm. This is where they were born. This is where they grew up. This is why they have this attitude and stuff. You could not ever possibly put that into a script. Right. But you can supply it to uh the actors on the down low
1: and you also uh, one reason fiction writers can often become good screenplay writers is they know how to entertain with words you can find the best adjective right and you don't over describe you don't do the director's job of filling in all the atmosphere and and all the motivations and and everything but you lay the groundwork, but you make it something you want to turn the page to continue reading. Mm-hmm. And you if and it's I, just flat description, you just drop that script. We have seen pages.
0: scripts change, oh, yeah. uh, in our lifetimes too. Because now they're saying, "What are you putting camera directions in here for?" Yeah, that's what the director does. Yep. I'm just. I just said high angle. That's it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like because because you're making a point by putting the the omniscient that point yeah, of view yeah some
1: of those things are important and up should there. be in
0: there and yeah. and it's like but there's no limit to how much of it you could put in a script mm-hmm. if you wanted to but then you would wind up with the equivalent of a screenplay that the flip side of every page has got camera blocking and, you know, exactly you know yeah. so
1: so have you ever been interested in directing
0: that's really weird because I'm one of the few postmortem guests that's not a director it's true. But we've had. We an are handful. an endangered species. We have an oh, handful. name
1: two. Neil Gaiman. Oh, him. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of the actors who've been on, Henry Thomas. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: you have a relationship with yeah. Henry Thomas. It goes all the way back to cycle four. Yeah, when he was 18. Probably even before, even before that. But
1: we're also expanding. It's not just about directors, but um, everybody in the process they're all important
0: i love the process of making movies i love being on sets i'll be the first person there and the last person to leave but i've never had what you call a burning aspiration to take over that director's chair the closest that i come to it is like when you see somebody like fucking it up and you You want to go no let me do it this way yeah, yeah yeah and it's and it's like then you know that'll that'll get you thrown off a set faster than anything and and uh uh uh, and you just you, you know kind of kind of keep a lid on it. There was an opportunity that came up about over a decade ago, uh, where there was a low budget producer uh, who was had fallen in with some friends of mine in Australia, and they wanted to do four features for a million bucks each. And they said, "Well, if this deal goes, we want you to come down and direct one." Uh-huh. And if that had happened at that time, I probably would have gone down there with a shot. Now, not so much. It's like the prep is exhausting. <laughs> it it, it is. is. It is just like. I'm I was doing the fun part by watching somebody else shoot my show. Yeah. on the set and I can butt in and make, you know, snide, they do all aside, the heavy lifting. snide yeah. asides and you know stuff stuff like that. But I've seen enough the only thing I know about directing is what I've observed other directors doing on sets. Yeah. And I and it's sometimes you think I I could do that and at other times you think you know, dumber people than me have done this. <laughs> and so it, it goes back and forth. But the, op- the opportunity never really presented itself, nor did I ever uh, think about it. pursuing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I direct scripts when I write them enough. I'm directorial enough when I'm doing, doing scripts.
1: Exactly. And then you don't have to do the hard parts. <laughs> so, yeah. David J. Scow. Thank you for joining us on postmortem. Well, that seemed like about ten minutes. Yeah, well, we did the hour.
0: Okay, (laughs) all right. Now I got to interview you. Yeah, okay, that'll be next. (laughs) Thanks, man.
1: All right, Dave. Thank you, and I will see you very soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Post Mortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as 2 cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain 1 gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on amazon.com/questnutrition. That's amazon.com/questnutrition.